4: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
5: Thank you all very much for coming. It's really good to see you all. Thanks for coming out on a cold night. I'm not surprised you're here though because the book sounds amazing and it's amazing to have Derek Owusu here to talk about Losing the Plot, published by Canongate Books. Derek's going to be in conversation with Jason Ovenday, whose book we would have on the table, except it's not published till 2024, Revolutionary Acts, which we're also really looking forward to. Um, Thank you both very much for being here, and please welcome our guests. Thank you both so much.
0: Hi everyone, Uh, welcome to today's event. We're chatting to the fabulous Derek about his new book, Losing the Plot, which is getting rave reviews, which we're going to get into. Uh, So, how are you today, Derek?
4: I'm good, actually. Yeah, I've been nervous about this event.
0: So today, um, a couple hours ago, Derek tweeted, "Like, I feel like, you know, for these interviews, he wants people to ask about the body and the gym." Uh, So. (laughs) no 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 let's not let's not go into that but (laughs) this book losing the plot um so honestly not to kind of just like blow smoke up your ass but it's incredibly beautiful and it's incredibly moving but what is really notable about it Notable about it is the structure. The structure is incredibly unique. So the way that it's composed is that there's a body of text which represents the mother in the story, and then there are marginal notes as well um, from the mother's son, kind of like narrating and translating and commentating on the mother. So, what was the kind of like inspiration behind this format, and how did this format come to you? Did the book have different forms before it took this structure?
4: Yeah. So, um, essentially, when I when I wrote the book as as I always start most of my books, is kind of like a series of poems, kind of like poetry. The son was in the main narrative, intertwined in the main narrative. Um, and then, you know, I kind of started thinking because of what I was trying to do, trying to really kind of, you know, get people to pay attention to the narrative, the mother's narrative, her story, this is about her and the son is just basically there as part of her story. Um, I decided to kind of move the sun to kind of the the footnotes at the at the bottom of the page. And and that was also basically so where there's so there's a lot of untranslated tree in the book. So there's like words, there's some longer phrases. And I also didn't want a glossary in the book. I just felt like from my experience of reading books where there's a glossary of the words, people would keep having to go and check what the word means and then go back and all those kind of things. And I just felt like it took people out of the narrative too much. Um, so I didn't want that. I didn't want to translate it, but I also just wanted to kind of, to be like, you know, no, you know, just you have to try and figure out what the words mean, because that is a lot of our experiences, you know, my generation and your generation with, with immigrant mothers who didn't want to teach us their mother tongue. We had to kind of listen to them speaking and get the context of the words or when they're insulting us try and get the context of being insulted, and then figure out what it means so I wanted to give the reader that ex- exact experience as well um but obviously when the son does come in speaking in the in the in the footnotes there would be a, a translation of the word within what he's saying and the reader would just obviously have to try and figure it out um and then when I was having a conversation with my editor she was kind of like you know what Derek if you're gonna do this experimental thing. Just go all the way. Like just having footnotes there, it's not enough. So she was just like, move the sun into the margins, which made perfect sense because what I was trying to do was essentially marginalize the sun anyway. So that would be you know uh, a visual representation of marginalizing the sun, the children, and focusing on the mother's story, as mothers tend to marginalize themselves and put their children's story before before them. This was another way to do that and put put her first. Um, and it just kind of worked it just worked in in that way and you know a lot of people ask me when I do events and I'm sure some people ask me to kind of like should I read the main text first and then read the the margin or whatever? but it's, it's up to you however you want to read it do you know what I mean um you can read the main body of the text first and then go back and read or read them at the same time it's up to you you know I just really tried to create an exp- it was trying we were trying to create an experience with with the experimental style
0: I think it's interesting you talk about the kind of like difficulty in understanding um, your parents, but the fact that you kind of work from context in a similar way, the way in which the man in the margins, mm-hmm. um speaks and writes, it's there's a certain kind of like working class black vernacular there, which for some audiences would possibly need that translated. But also it's not necessarily like the language that you speak to. So where did you source the language for Akwasi, um in writing that? Did you have conversations with people to... Trying to establish that, or did that come from any kind of familial or friendship influence?
4: Yeah, the the choice of I guess the voice for the son was it kind of just it felt natural that that had to be the voice. That's that's one thing. And when you're writing when you're writing fiction, sometimes you have no idea where these ideas come from. They just come somewhere, and they just work or they don't. And this just it felt like this would work. Um, and now I, I keep saying this as well that. When it comes to, I guess, kind of like working class black vernacular or whatever, when you're a black person or when you're working class, you just think to yourself, I can write this. It's going to be so easy. I know how to write slang. I've been around this my whole life. Do you know what I mean? But it was incredibly hard. You know, it was really, really difficult to do. I kept, I was writing and it, reading it back and then reading it out loud. And it was just kind of like, there's just something not right about this. So I had to really work at it to try and get the, the rhythm and the cadences. And everything in the right place so that it didn't it so that it sounded right because you know I think a lot of people when they read as well they don't realize that they're reading bad slang in novels. Black British, they don't realize they're reading it that it's terrible. Like for example, people assume that guys who grow up in and it's even like road men speak how they speak in like top boy or Hood, But no one speaks like that all the time. It, do you know what I mean? They, they, we, we, when we code switch, it's not just when we're speaking to people outside of our experience, when we're speaking to each other as well. You know, we'll so you'll be talking to someone and their, their English would, you know, become more slangy and they become almost more formal and then they'll kind of drop a word that they heard somewhere and they want to try and show off with that word. Do you know what I mean? So many different different ways of speaking. And that's why I was really trying to recreate, not create a caricature of, you know, of, of working class um black English. And that was, yeah, it was very, very, it was really hard to do. But luckily I had my kind of, my brother around. And th- another thing that was hard is that you have to decide what kind of black English do you want to use here? Because I couldn't use words like like pattern, because th- I just don't know what that means realistically, do you know what I mean? Or words like peng or trung. So I had to think to myself, what genre of <laughs> black English am I trying to use here? Do you know what I mean? There was a, there was a lot of thought that had to go into it, um, but yeah, lucky I did have my my brother ran, and he not in terms of the words, but the way he spoke, the the rhythm, you know, when they're speaking, it, it's like there's a proper rhythm to it, do you know what I mean? I could pick that up from him, and you know, listen to him, and he would, I would say, read stuff out to him, and he would just be like, nah, nah, Derek, I'm not right about this, and I'll change one word, and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's how we would say it, that's, do you know what I mean? Um, so that was that was really helpful.
0: And I think that's interesting because when people escape this book, particularly if they know who you are, they might make the assumption that the man in the margins is just you and that's oh, how you speak and it's coming from your internal. Yeah. And something you've been keen to emphasize is that this is a book this is a work of fiction. Yeah. Even though perhaps it's been prompted by thoughts and conversations you've had about, you know, your mother and of migration and of guardian heritage, it is a work of fiction. And so what kind of placeholders from your own life did you take and then build from using imagination? And did you specifically try to limit how much of, you know, how much it resembled perhaps yourself and your mother or your family?
4: I didn't I didn't need to try because I don't know anything about my mother or, you know, my family too much. You know, with the with the voice in the margins, I'm trying to think, was there anything that I thought this has happened and I could fictionalize it? I don't think so. No. I just kind of well, actually, no, I guess things, general things like prayer, like praying, you know, ha, you know, Pentecostal style of praying where kind of like in the middle of the night you're up and you're like uppercutting the devil and doing all this kind of stuff, fighting and that kind of enthusiastic prayer, that kind of thing. And I just, I, just general things that we all know, you know, you're, you're about to go to like on a night out. Your mum's in the kitchen cooking with Bear Maggie and spices and stuff, and you don't want the food to go in your clothes. So you wait till the last minute, and then you run out the front door. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> those kind of things that we've all experienced, that, that's there. But that's not, that's not mine. That's not something that's mine. Um, and, yeah, so, yeah, the main narrative, all of it is, just, is complete fiction. And I, 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 I feel complimented when someone says, "No, this has to be a memoir, because it means that they're really feeling like these characters are real. And there's something about them that is really connecting with them. Because I've read many memoirs and I've read reviews of memoirs where people are just kind of like, this just feels, you know, too made up. Do you know what I mean? They're not even connecting with a real story. So if people connect with mine and thinking this, I'll, you know, I'll take that. I
0: mean, there's a kind of authenticity in the fiction which makes it very real. Um, but I also think that it's a very rare example of a kind of like Afropolitan working class experience of, you know, someone who is like, to this country and i think that the parallels you can make would be say for example the lonely londoners and the kind of fictionalization of um working class caribbean migrants in this country and the kind of working conditions that they faced Mm. but i wonder though this book is fiction could we also consider this book a kind of historical record um so you're saying that you know you spoke to some experiences which you felt were universal for children and migrants and in lieu of us being able to actually speak to our parents is there something that you're trying to capture and like a time to create a kind of like record of you know this time and these kind of intergenerational relations for people in the future
4: yeah i think this the the difficulty and the resistance in trying to get to the past i think black british people we there's such contradiction in what we we're trying to do or what we think we're supposed to do you know the 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 cliche that you know you don't know where you're going until you know where you've been you have to learn from the past and all these kind of things but a lot of our past and histories, individual family histories are blocks to us we can't access them because our parents won't give us that information a lot of us you know you want to know you know people always talk about um generational curses and all of these kind of things um but they don't really know the details of what's happened in the family life before they were born. Um, And that is, from what I've read as well, often a uniquely black British thing. Do you know what I mean? Well, no, an immigrant thing. Um, So I think, yeah, people reading in the future, I hope that they're able to, the essence of that conflict is there and uh, the struggle that we faced in trying to reach for an identity and not being able to do that so having to then create our own our, in a sense do you know what i mean out of that that conflict that happens um but also know that it's always coming from a place of love do you know what i mean you know when we ask our parents questions and we want to know things about their past it's always coming from a place of love it's never we're just trying to be nosy and whatnot you know and i hope that that comes across in the voice in the margins in the book that you know as he's almost reading the book along with us because he wants to get to know his mum a bit more. But he's also adding anecdotes. Adding, adding he's adding spices to the stories. By the end, you realise, I have a relationship with my mum, even though I don't actually know who she was before me, that doesn't take away from the actual real life connection that I have with her.
0: I think that resistance that you get with West African mothers in particular is quite interesting because I find that West Africans are some of the most natural storytellers as mm-hmm. well. It's subject on tradition. So yeah. I remember mean, when I was younger, my mother would tell me all of these kind of like folk stories about like the tortoise and things like that. Um, And if you can get them in the right mood for gist, they will go off. You know, they will probably like start narrating like such gossip. So
4: until they catch themselves. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly that. (laughs) So what do you think it is um, that sets up such a barrier? And also, do you think it's a specific West African issue? Because sometimes, you know, I look at the record that Caribbean people have of their elders, and I think it's a lot stronger. Even say the book Um Homecoming by Colin Grant, where you just have like a number of Caribbean migrants, you know, speaking about their life experiences and talking about even the smallest details that we possibly just can't get out of our parents, whether it's, you know, where did you work and how long did you work there for? Yeah. Do you think yeah. it's a specific West African issue?
4: I think I think now it seems to be specifically West African. I think that it's about being comfortable in the country that you're now trying to set up shop in. Um, but of course, you know, I was even me and Simeon, my friend Simeon Brown, we joke about this all the time, you know, that he says that the only time you really find out what your uncle's real name was, was at his funeral. Because with Jamaicans, they're always using a false name. You'll never know what their real name is. Um, And I think with with kind of like the Windrush generation, they got to a point where they may have felt comfortable in the UK. And then they can kind of share their histories and stuff because they feel like this is our country. My mom doesn't feel like this is her country. She feels she lives here and she feels like she's British. But my mom, and my aunties, they don't really feel like this is their country yet. Whereas I do, in a certain way. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's what it is. So there's a really brilliant essay in um, in IC three, where there's a professor who basically comes to the same conclusion that I've come to that you know there's not enough literature on the West um, West African experience, and so she's trying to collate these stories and put them into a book. And all of the people that approach her are just resistant. No wants to talk about it. Some of them are even attacking her, calling her house, saying, why are you trying to probe into our lives and blah, blah, blah. It's because there's still a kind of a fear that they might be kicked out of the country. That's one. But then there's also that we've come here to start fresh. Why do you want to go into the past? Why do you want to do that? You know, like I always say that when talk people talk about, when West Africans especially talk about, you must know your history. You know, they're talking about collective history. They're not talking about individual history. If you asked about your life, that's not important. The struggle, yeah, that's important. What we all went through, not what me individually went through. Do you know what I mean?
0: I think that's the real difference between, you know, that generation and our generation as well, because um our generation are oversharers. Mm-hmm. So where my mother is horrified by my Twitter. Horrified. Yeah. She's yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. can
4: you My mum too? Yeah, how can yeah, yeah. you,
0: you know, I remember there was a video that came out recently and it was of these, like, young kids. They were kind of hotting up their um African dad for having an affair. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, my God, the inside of your living room to all of these people. I was just there thinking to my mom, even if I put a picture, even if I put a photo that shows a bit of the living room, that shows a bit of the bedroom, it's like, ah, why are you showing all these people yeah, yeah, where, you yeah, li- yeah. where you live? They can, fa- they can figure that out. Yeah. And do you almost feel like our generation has kind of, like subverted that because I almost sometimes think that the reason why I'm such an oversharer is because my mother is not and I almost feel like free to be able to say like this this and that and talk about my life experience and things that have happened
4: yeah that's that's a good point actually um I think a lot of our generation are overshares. one obviously because there is social but though I I do believe if social media was around when my mum was young as well she still wouldn't be oversharing do you know what I mean um but yeah social media plays a part um but also like I said, the fact that our generation, our identity is so shaky, we use the oversharing for people to say me too. And then we can connect with them. Do you know what I mean? And then through that, then try and build a community. Do you know what I mean? Because um, I feel like that's what I love. Because when you, especially on social media, that's what oversharing realistically is about. When someone likes a tweet, they're saying, yeah, me too. Or that's funny. Or that's connection when someone retweets, that's connection. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I feel like, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's what it is, but it's it's interesting you say that. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously my mom's never seen my Twitter. I don't think my mom really understands what Twitter is, but when I do like these events and I'll say to my mom, yeah, so I was, I said this to the audience and she'd be like, ah, what? why are you telling all of these people your business, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think people should also take that in mind as well, to think that this is how my mom is. It would be absolutely impossible for me to write about her real life in a book because she would just not talk to me ever again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah.
0: And this is what I wanted to get onto as well. So there's the main body of the book and then there's an epilogue um, which shows a quest he to record a conversation with his mother. And mm. what it really captures, rather than any information because she doesn't give it, is the kind of hesitance and the worry... But something that really stuck with me is when she said, are you going to go and sell me? And I thought, do you know what? She's got a point. Because there's an extent to which, you know, writers or people on social media are kind of like taking these experiences, perhaps, of their parents or people around them, or even perhaps their own trauma. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of just pimping it out and selling. And there's this kind of like compulsion to. So if you had written, if you had gotten access to your mother's memories and you had written this book as a memoir and gone and sold that, you probably could have also sold that very well because it's kind of like, ah, oh, I'm taking this vulnerable story. I'm putting myself in it. And um, Do you ever feel like there's this almost like there's this pressure or we've set up this expectation now that we're actually are doing that? We're selling ourselves. We're selling our relatives. We're selling everyone's story like to chase some kind of publication back.
4: That's what writers have always done. Writers have always done that. And this is why the People say don't date a writer because they'll they'll literally just take your entire life and turn it into a novel afterwards. Um, but this, but I I I definitely yeah I think that there has to have there has to be limits. Um, and I think I think there usually is limits. You know, you know we we talk about oversharing and stuff like that. But I really don't think people online share as much as we think they do. You know, everything is still curated. Even if you know when you have a thought and you start tweeting it. No one just blah, 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 and then tweets. They write it, and then they edit it, then they change it. Like, do you know what I mean? It's still curated in a particular way to try and get engagement, even if it does feel like, you know, it's coming from the heart and all and those, those kind of things. So, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, um, hmm.
0: So this book, Losing the plug. it has a very specific and unique literary form. But where do you think, feel that it sits within the kind of schema of Black British literature? Do you think it sits outside? Do you think there's like a strong literary tradition which it borrows from? What are your kind of influences?
4: Yeah, it definitely borrows from literary traditions in a sense that the language and the way that I've... Just, I guess, having the confidence to write um, Black British slang in a book. Um, that's me pulling from books that I've read, like from Robin Travis to, you know, to Korte Newland. Um, and then feeling like I can write about uh, an older African woman, you know, that's coming from uh, Buche Machata and um, um, Sarah Maninka, you know, reading their books and um, feeling feeling like, wow, yeah, okay, I have not seen much of this. We need more of this. This is interesting. These, you know, I've always found my... My mother's and my, my auntie's fascinating. You know, ever since I was younger, I used to just kind of watch them and what they do and, and find them really interesting. So the fact that there's not loads of literature have them based on it, because anyone who has a, an immigrant parent as well, you know that they, they don't realise how funny they are, how interesting they are, do you know what I mean? Um, so I would love to read more and more literature um, about them. But, yeah, I'm putting it from everybody, every writer, every black British writer, that's come before me, you know. Um, I also think that, you know, I wish wish there was more influence. I wish there was more, you know. Um, That's not to say there hasn't been a lot of Black British novels. There has, but, you know, talking to some of the older writers, they will tell you that, you know, the novels from the 70s and a lot of them from the 60s, you're never going to hear about them again. You're never going to see them because they're just gone. They're out of print. People have forgotten their names. And those kind of things. So I wish I had more influence, you know, um, but I'm, I am very happy that I can sit here and say most of my writing is influenced by black British writers as opposed to African-American writers who have had influence on me in a certain way, but not in a way where I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm part of these people. These are, these are my people, you know. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I feel like you've got like a very specific relationship with like a kind of like older generation of black writers who you've connected with. Do you feel like there's a difference in the kind of like community and support you find with them and with black British writers that are of your own age or even younger? <sighs>
4: um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, I do. I mean... I think that may be down to, I mean, it could be many, many things. It could be down to um, the fact that the publishing industry does position a lot of black British novelists in a way where it's like we're in competition with each other. It might be the fact that I am a little bit crazy and they don't want anything to do with me. That's that's one of them. Um, and also might be like the older writers. So for example, like Courtney Newland is my mentor. Benjamin Zephaniah is my mentor. They may have just kind of seen, I don't know, something in me and, and decided, you know, we want to, you know try and help him and and these kind of things but um yeah and it does it does disappoint me you know because in terms of uh black british novelists um my contemporaries i i i don't i don't know any of them like i don't i don't have any of their numbers or anything like that i don't think i'm i probably forgetting but i just I don't think so.
0: Why do you think that is? Do you think there's something specific to this time and like the individualism of it?
4: There's just something, there's also something very black British about it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like everybody starts writing and they publish some books and in a lot of black British people's heads, they've got that thing where I don't want to be a beg. I don't want to be, a. I don't even think I'm begging them or something like that. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, if I reach out to somebody, if I say, "Oh my god, I love your work. I think you're amazing," blah blah, I'm suffering from it. Too. In my head, I'm thinking, just oh, gonna think I'm begging him." But I don't. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I don't want to do it, and I, and I know it's, it works that way as well, which is, it's an annoying thing. Do you know what I mean? I wish we could just, but there are there are some. I mean, I do see it. I think more with um, with Black British women writers, they don't care about that stuff. They'll reach out, and be like, "Yes, yeah, sis, I'm ready. Like, I want to be your friend. Let me jump in your DMs and let's let's do up friendship." They're like, "Yeah, cool." Do you know what I mean? I've never seen a black actually no, some of my queer friends will do that. You know, me and you, we jumped in each other's DMs. Um, you have to do up friendship, friendship. <laughs> <laughs> um it's not stuff. do you know what I mean? So but yeah, yeah, generally it just it just doesn't it just doesn't happen, unfortunately.
0: And so you think there's a particular problem with black British men in publishing, because you know, there's so few of us anyway.
4: Yeah, there is, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it's it that's definitely it. Um and, you know, we don't talk about it, unfortunately. We have to kind of pretend and create this facade of this, we're all in it together. It's not that like we, we don't hate, we're not hating on each other or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I just personally wish that we were more connected. There was more, do you know what I mean? If people were going to talk about this generation, they could talk about this, like, tradition of writers who would come together or, like, or, like, there's, like, I can't think of, like, a group photo with all, like, young novelist, young black British novelist in one photo or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? It just feels like everybody's just separate, which I just don't. I I wish it was different.
0: Yeah. So, so far, you've had a very good review run as well. And I think that sometimes something we've discussed before is the kind of like politics or reviews and, you know, Mm. who does the review. So, Something that people say is that, you know, you don't want your proof to get in the hand of your enemies in case they review someone and decide to go and get revenge on you or something. But at the same time, do you want your proof to get into the hands of, you know, someone who is like your friend and then they review it and they give it something blowing and are not really sure about the criticism? You've always said that for second books. That's when reviewers really like to let the chopper sing. They like to, you know, say, okay, now that this person mm-hmm. is no longer fresh we can really go, and move, go to town with this. But yeah. your reviews have been really good and beautiful so far. Um, what has been your kind of uh, reaction to this? And have any reviews kind of like stood out to you as being particularly considerate of the book and its themes?
4: I, yeah, I still, <laughs> so, in, yeah, in, so in answer to the first question, I don't think anybody should be reviewing proofs at all. I think proofs should just be to read for you to get a gist of what's coming. So much changes in the proof, do you know what I mean? Especially if you're writing... A book of like poetry or very precise prose and stuff. So much can change from the proof to the hardback. So I don't think people should. I mean, they're going to, but I don't think they should. I wish they didn't. In terms of the reviews, I'm kind of. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. You've been reading them though. I've best- read all of them. Yeah, I've read yeah, all of them. Uh, <laughs> and um, I'm kind of just like, wow, this is this is cool. I mean, because even with my first book, I did. I think I got maybe like two. Press reviews or anything like that when it first came out. So it's all a bit, it's very, it's quite overwhelming, you know. Um, of course, because um I was a lot more precise with this book as well. So I'm reading to make to see if the reviewers actually read the book or understood it and so on and so forth. Um, so Michael Donkor's review in the eye paper was 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 amazing. And of course, he's a he's another queer black British Ghanaian man. So he read it in in a way I, I hoped another person like him would read it. You know, it was a very generous review. Harriet Mercer's review in the Arts Desk was really detailed and pulling out. Oh, you're here. Oh, hello. Hi. <laughs> um, you know, pulling out pulling out things that I kind of put in just for fun for myself, you know, but but she picked them out, you know, things that um with kind of the smells and um at the perfume Red Door that my mom and a lot of West African mothers loved as well, Red Door, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like the, the smell of my, my childhood, do you know what I mean? So yeah, but yeah, the, it's, it's just still very, it's still very surreal. Like I don't, it's tough for me to process. It's the same with kind of like when I won the Desmond Elliott Prize. Even to this day, I won it like two years ago and I still, it's still kind of strange to me.
0: Is there anyone you don't want to read it? Do you ever think, like, do you have any, have any anxiety about particular groups reading it? So, say, for example, your mother. Do you think your mother would read the book?
4: She won't read it. I mean, I don't have a problem with her reading it. Mm-hmm. But she won't read it. I just think she, she's happy I've done it, you know. Um, she's trying to care. I know she doesn't really care. But she, she's, trying, she's trying her best. Um, so when we, got, when we got the hardbacks to the house and I brought them out, I was like, oh, mum, look. Um she was like oh, okay and then she stopped and turned around She's like oh my son come and give me a hug like because she knew that's what i wanted she didn't really care she carried on pounding her fifth afterwards didn't <laughs> do you know what i mean um but no i don't i don't mind any, anybody i would it's for it's for everybody to read anybody to read um and again i don't mind how anybody reads it if someone wants to read it like a poetry collection or as a straightforward novel or read the you know people can read it in any way they want I don't, I don't mind as long as they feel something from it that's what i care about
0: as someone who's in quite like a niche space of literature what does success look like to you
4: i have no idea um success
0: do you think there are certain markers of success um which black british authors get quite obsessed with as well
4: yeah yeah no i think i think i think that a lot of us are uh, too obsessed with being like Sunday Times bestsellers and mm. being the bestseller, these kind of or being the first. I am the first. This the first that, um, and we're usually wrong. We're usually not the first this or first that. It's because again we've forgotten who's come before us. Um, but for me personally, I would only be able to know success if I was able to live two hundred years from now, and that I'm never going to be able to look back and see if my book is still around or people are still taking things from it that would be success to me that, yeah, 200 years from now, you know, people are still reading it.
0: And what do you feel is the importance of legacy and posterity to Black British literature? And do you think that Black British books in this moment are aiming for posterity, or are they aiming to kind of capture a viral moment and just sell quickly?
4: I don't, I mean, I think think it's fairer to say the publishing industry are trying to capture moments and sell quickly. The authors who are being given publishing deals, when, look, when you get a publishing deal, you're just so excited. You're willing to like just do what you want to do to you know to, to be successful and whatnot. And I think in the hands of the wrong publisher, yeah, it becomes a moment, self in the moment, do you know what I mean? Let's just aim to big uh, Sunday Times number one bestseller, blah, 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 do you know what I mean? Um, I think the perfect example of that is Bernardino Evaristo, who's been writing for over 30 years, you know, um she wasn't selling loads of books but her editor had faith in her was like no no would you you know just keep writing keep writing you know and then she you know she won the booker huh? and now her entire backlist has got a revamp you know and those books now will definitely be read 100 years from now do you know what i mean and um because yeah she was never thinking about how i wanted to be you know a, a number one sunday times bestseller I, I don't think that was on her mind at all when she was writing the books and um but, I mean, look, each to their own. I mean, you know, we've got, to, we've got to get this money at the end of the day. You know, like, it's, it's difficult to, to be a writer. Like, you know, some people are not comfortable. Like, I'm very comfortable living with my mum until I'm 50, as long as I can still carry on writing books. I don't mind doing that. As long as she you know, she's all right with me being there, that's cool. And, I'm, you know, I'm still paying for the rent, the gas, the electricity, the water and everything else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't mind being there. But other people are like, no, no, I need to get out. I need to have my own space. I need to do these kind of things. I don't have those uh, those kind of ambitions.
0: And you have the experience, I guess, of moving over to a smaller independent press as well. And do you think there have been, like, particular benefits um, to mm. being with an independent publisher?
4: Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, Penguin is a massive, massive publisher. And it's the same when you have, a, like, a massive... When you're with an agent who's got a massive roster, you know. It's inevitable that you're not going to be, you know... The gem, the gem in their crown. Um and but yeah, being with with Cannongate, which is a I mean it's 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 a a big independent press, you know, yeah. it's kind of like Faber, it's big independent press. Um but yeah, the experience is different, very, very different, you know. Usually you'll email with your editor about things. No, my editor, Ella, she invited me around the house, you know, she cooked me a vegan meal. And then she was like, We're gonna read the book out loud and edit it that way. And that's old school, do you know what I mean? That doesn't happen. When I say tell that to people, they're just like, what, really? I just got, like, one email, like, about the edits and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, it sucks for you, boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So that experience has been amazing. Yeah, it's been great. And, um, you know, and when, when Ella kind of, you know, pitched for the book, you know, she was very honest. And she, she said to me, she's like, Derek, I love the book, but I'm buying into you as a writer as well you know she's like i want to work with you i want to develop you as a writer and um and ella's worked with you know some greats you know with linton crazy johnson and, and people like that you know she's been in the game for a long time you know she deserves way more flowers than she's getting so i feel really honored to be able to work with ella um so yeah yeah kind of I, I feel like definitely was the right move for me Yeah, absolutely. And it feels
0: like you've had a real chemistry with your team to come up with, like, you know, this beautiful book, but also that beautiful cover as well. So I was in a cafe this morning and I had the book and the waitress was like, oh, this book's cover is, you know, incredible. Like, Mm. um, so yeah, I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah, yeah.
4: The the, the cover was designed by um, Emma Eubank and she Mm. actually um, wrote an amazing breakdown of how she came up with the cover. And it shows, like, the early stages of how she went through it, how she approached the book, the elements of the book. You know, she really read the book and... Um and it's an amazing breakdown of the cover. Yeah, the cover's, yeah, really, really, really good. I love it.
0: and something I want to ask as well, just going back to the book itself and how you see your kind of like position as a writer, almost like documenting London. So your book is very rooted in Tottenham. Do you see this as being a fixture of your work going forward and you being from that area? Do you feel like you will always kind of like return to Tottenham at this kind of like location?
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, Tottenham's Tottenham's fun to write about. There's loads of characters in Tottenham, there's loads of you know, I'm very, you know, it's interesting because, you know, writing these books, I really feel like, so with my first novel, you know, the protagonist, each section is kind of like a prayer to Anansi, which is what's supposed to signify the character of reaching for Ghanaian culture for acceptance. I feel like every single book that I've written and will continue writing is me trying to find some sort of acceptance in Ghanaian culture because I still feel outside of it, you know. Um, and Ghana, I mean, for, for me anyway, growing up, Tottenham was the hub for Ghana. Broadwater Farm was like Kumasi for me when I was growing up, you know, and that's where we were, so that's why I'm going to write. That's why I just love writing about it. It doesn't really matter where it's situated, you know. I feel like I'm just writing human stories, do you know what I mean? I'm writing about people and... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, just, yeah, it's a place, it's
0: And a place So do that. you feel that in like, imprinting this really strong Ghanaian identity in your writing, you've kind of been able to reconnect or connect more strongly with your heritage and the heritage of your parents? No, okay.
4: no, 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 I don't, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> so you're just pimping out the culture for the, for the money?
4: No, but what I'm doing is trying to make people, you know, so in, in losing a plot especially, there's, there's things in there that I think that only a working-class British Ghanaian will, will get. And I did that on purpose so that they would read it and be like, hmm, okay, yeah, interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you know I, And it's just, it's just fun to do. It feels like, I don't know, yeah. And at the same time, I'm just entertaining myself too. You know, Ghanaian culture is, is entertaining for me. I, I love it. I love everything about it, you know.
0: Do you ever fear their opinion the most? Because, you know, in case you get something, the tweet slightly wrong, will you get some slight... Oh, absolutely.
4: I mean, it happened to me, but that reminds me, actually. Oh, right. Um another a Ghanaian author who's born in Ghana raised in called Nee Parks, actually. He's a is a, a good friend of mine, actually. And um he was, yeah, he was reading it and he he whatsapped to me. He was like, Derek, um here in this sentence, you said that your mum is wearing um a kente or something like that. And he was like, No, no, what you mean, you mean is untuma? He was she was he was like, Kente is a type of untuma. And in my head, I was just like, okay, cool. Well, my mum calls everything kente. To me, and that's why I wrote that. So I went back to my mom, and was like, mom, why why did you call everything kente when this is untuma and this is a type of untuma? And she was just like, why do you care about such things? It's none of, like." She was just yeah. like, it's none of your business. Do you, know I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so that was that was worrying. So yeah, when I was going through losing the plot, I spoke to my aunties, I spoke to a lot of my aunties. And with words in tree, especially when I'm trying to get the spelling right, they sometimes they spell the same word in different ways. Yeah. Um, and my mom and aunties haven't been in Ghana for like, what, over 30 years. So my mom would say one way, my auntie would say another. And luckily I could Instagram this guy who, who actually lives in Ghana. And I'd be like, yo, my mom says this way, this way. He's like, which, I was like, which one's right? And he was like, they're both wrong. This is how you actually, this is the way to do it. So luckily, you know, uh, Kobe Ben, and he's actually got a book coming out um, next year as well. He helped me with, with a lot of the tree in there.
3: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, great. Cool. Uh, I think
4: we've got time for audience questions now. Um, Thanks, guys. Uh, that was really good. Um, very cool shades, Jason. Uh, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I
0: couldn't find my actual glasses. <laughs> yeah. But. so.
4: Great questions as well. Um, I think you you covered most of mine. But one thing I was going to ask, um, I think firstly, pick up on your point. I think it's not just a specific West African thing, because as an East African, I find the same problem. Um, I live with my great aunt. And as you said, sometimes she's ready to tell the story. Other times you can't get a word out of her. Mm -hmm. So I can relate to that a lot. But I was going to ask, what was the biggest challenge you faced, given that it was fiction and that? So, a lot of it you could sort of like figure out on your own. Um, Mm -hmm. What was the biggest challenge that you faced in doing that because you weren't working from directly the stories that you were being given? Yeah. I think so. Now, so there was a moment where me knowing I was writing fiction and then also knowing that I was working with inspiration from my my mum's voice in my head that really clashed because I wanted to write about. Her romantic relationships, the, the protagonist um, romantic relationships. And I wanted to write about sex. But there was just a part of me that was just like, Derek, like you you can't, you, <laughs> you can't do. And it, it felt inauthentic to the story I was telling as well. Because, you know, if I'm writing about the lack of information and the snapshots that I, that I may have been able to piece together from from wherever, there was sex was never going to be part of that it would, be, it would be impossible I feel like if I put sex in this book readers would just be like no nah, I don't think so this this doesn't this doesn't feel right you know and um so that that there were that was big conflicts where the fiction and I guess the uh, the inspiration came in, in the clash together and I had to really kind of but um difficult I think the the hardest part was was actually the editing the editing process was hard um um, one, because yeah, we had to read it out loud. I don't feel like I'm a very strong reader. So I was, I was stumbling a lot with over, over words and Ella would say to me, if you're stumbling too much, then maybe it's because you're, you think that the reader knows exactly what's in your head. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that was, yeah, that was a really, really long process. It, it really got to the point when, when I was editing, I was just like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, I can keep going. We're only halfway through the book, and um, we still had to read it out loud again for a second time as well. I was really now honestly re- I, I don't know if Ella's here, but I was really pissed off when she was like, "Let's read it out loud, man." I was just like, "I can't, be- I can't believe she's making me do this." Um, so yeah, that was that was probably yeah one of the hardest bits. Yeah.
1: Hi, Derek. Congratulations! Uh-huh. This sounds absolutely beautiful. Thank and you. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Um, my mum is from Ghana, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give her a copy as well. Um, I was actually speaking to her recently, mm-hmm. and as Ghanaian mums do, she's just randomly came up with the fact that she's been in the UK longer than she was ever in Ghana. Mm. She's actually been in the UK for 50 years um, compared to her 26 years in Ghana before she came. Mm. And it kind of got us talking. And it made me think about how our generation, as you spoke about, always feels kind of slightly estranged from the culture. And we're always trying to anchor ourselves authentically in that culture. Mm. But having that conversation with my mum made me realise she too is also trying to anchor herself in something she now feels a strange from even though we would see that generation as authentic. They speak the language, they live there, they came over. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered how much that came up in the book. Obviously I haven't had a chance to yeah. read it or you think about that in terms of your own mum.
4: yeah no absolutely that that conflict is is very much there in the book. And um I try to, you know, bring it out in kind of really, really minor ways. I'm trying to think, for example, um, the protagonist in the book will always be eating, I guess, um, what we call garner bread, or Jamaicans call hard dough bread, always be eating the garner bread, you know, but with a cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? And th- those two things clashes together, the two things. So little details like that I tried to put, put, put into the book um, to make it obvious that, you know... And, and there's all, there's also, I've kind of felt as well from, like, family and things like that, there is a tiny bit of resentment towards Ghana as well. Um, I'm not sure where that comes from. I do try and interrogate a little bit in the book, but there is a little bit of that where it's kind of like our parents are happy to like build a house in their homeland and do this and put their family in it. But then when you ask them also, when are you going to go and live in that house? They're like, what for? Do you know what I mean? Um, So, yeah, there it is. It's it's weird. It it almost feels like they're in a similar situation to us.
1: Yeah, sometimes I think you understand you're closer to them than you realise. Yes, yes. Because of that estrangement, even though it's over a different temporality, it's like you're kind of reliving something slightly more distant, but it's the same
2: thing. It's the same thing, yeah.
4: Yeah, Yeah. and we're just more willing to talk about it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you very much for for the talk. It It was lovely, and I look forward to reading the book. I haven't managed to do so yet. One of the things that was interesting to me about... I'm sorry. One of the things that was interesting to me about what you were saying about talking and West African storytelling, I'm from the Caribbean, as you may be detectable, is that I have a sense that from my parents who never migrated, they lived in the Caribbean, that storytelling is a huge component of sociality like you describe, And also, I find that Caribbean people in England have have continued that. In I mean, we're talking in generalizations here. Mm-hmm. But I wonder whether the distinction that you sought to draw, Jason, I think it was you who drew it, between certain kinds of Caribbean experience and storytelling and carrying that on and the West African one, is a question about the specific history of migration to the U.K., because when I think about when Russian, other forms of Caribbean migration, I think that migration, by and large, doesn't occur because there is a domestic conflict, for example, mm-hmm. or or there is a there is a history of some sort of unrest leading to the to to, to a flight,
4: mm-hmm.
2: and maybe the guardedness, I wondered, I was just wondering as you were talking whether the guardedness that you are describing anecdotally relates to the nature of the migration and also a particular temporal universe, which is different from, say, the 60s and the 70s, et cetera. That, that, that's all.
4: Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a very, very good point, actually. Um, um, yeah, you know, and now that I, I think about, you know, speaking to my mom, you know, about, I guess, because my, when my mom came over to the UK, the president at the time in Ghana was, was Jerry John Rawlins, um, who my mum would always say was a wicked man. Um, but she wouldn't talk much about him, you know, and, it's, and she would always say to me, you know, when she was in Ghana, no one could any, really say anything about him. And I, I've read about this. if you say something about him, you know, and he finds out some way, some way, shape or form, you're in trouble. Um, so there, there might be a bit, a bit of that, you know, coming from a place like that where you you were told not to speak about, I guess, about too not to speak too much. Don't talk too much, you know. Keep keep quiet and and things like that. And actually makes me <laughs> think about, you know, my mom's reaction when I'm in the house and something will happen and I would say, oh, white people out loud. And my mom would be like, shh, why are you saying, why are you doing, like, why are you saying white people out loud? Someone's going to hear you. And I'm just like, what are you, you, what are you worried about? Do you know what I mean? Um, So there's, yeah, you're right. It's definitely an element of that. That's really interesting. I think you mentioned something about um, the book, like not being accepted
0: in Ghana or not being kind of taken in to like Ghanaian culture. I just kind of wondered about that impulse, what you were kind of,
4: Seeking no, to do that, no. I mean, I, I no. I hope I do hope it's embraced by, by Ghanaian culture. And the book, sorry, the, what I meant was the book is me writing the books is me trying to connect with Ghanaian culture. The, the books are my attempts um, to do that. But but from from the people I've spoken to, you know, that I've read it in Ghana, they, you know, they're very supportive of me as a writer. You know, um, they seem quite proud of me over here from from my debut, and, and hopefully that, that continues with with this book as well. I haven't yet been able to go over there. Hopefully, I will be able to go there next year and, and see what the reception is like. But no, the books are my personal attempt to really kind of connect with the with, with the culture.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Jason. Um, I feel like as a black British man, you could say so much about your life. And obviously, I know this is a work of fiction, but there's so, ma- so many ideas you probably have in your head. Mm. Was there a specific catalyst that made you think, I want to write about a Ghanaian mother... And also, do you have any ideas in the future as a writer that, like in the, as a writer, you want to write in the future? Because there's so much you could say. I feel like yeah. as being Black British, there's so much in, in the world that we have to kind of deal with. Yeah, um, And I'm wondering what made it now that was important for you to talk about mothers and is there anything in the future you want to talk about?
4: Yeah. Yeah, the inspiration for this book came out in, in 2020 during lockdown um, when I guess mortality was on a lot of our minds because so many people were dying and especially our older relatives were thinking about them and I was thinking about my mum a lot, you know, kind of like what I can do for her and so on and so forth. And um, I'd actually actually retired from writing at the time. I called my agent and was like, I'm done. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like the industry. I've got no more ideas. You know, so I'm kind of severing ties with you right now. And she was just like, "Okay, well, you know, in 20 years' time, if you have got an idea for a book, I'll still be your agent." You know, that's fine. I was like, "Thank you." Um, three weeks later, I, <laughs> um, I was at a friend's house and she was cooking me food. And suddenly, I don't know what happened. I just came over. Me I was like, "Oh my god! Like, I've got an idea for this book. I've got to write this book." Um, and um, yeah, she was mid cooking, and I just left. I just left. I was like, "I've got, a, I've got." A, I've got to write this. So I just I just went home and I just started writing. And I just wrote like the the beginning of the book, you know, the first few things. And it was fun. I really enjoyed writing them. And I sent them to my agent. And she was like, Derek, you know, I honestly think this is some of the best poetry you've written. Keep, keep, keep going. So and that was that. Um, and for the, so with with Carnegie, it's a two-book deal. And the the second book, um, I have I think the idea is ready. I'm pretty much gonna start writing it when whenever. So it's it's called um, the Aware Master," so it's literally about the the game Aware and about a, an older Ghanaian um, alcoholic man who doesn't realize he's an alcoholic, as so many of our fathers don't. Um, and I really wanted to interrogate interrogate that as well. Um, so yeah, that's what I can say about it at the moment, really, but um that's I don't know when it's going to come out, but um, I'm, I'm due to hand in the final manuscript around 2024 end of 2024, so yeah, we'll see thank you um hi um
0: how do you go about like writing your new ideas like how do you sort of like go about disciplining yourself or do you just is it free writing or is it
2: what's what's your yeah
4: yeah i i i can't discipline myself when it comes to writing um i wish i could you know i really respect writers who say okay i'm gonna wake up at seven i'm gonna write for two hours or write for five hours and that's done i can't do that unfortunately um like I said, I just have to just wait for something to feel like, OK, I'm ready to, to write this or, you know, um, and I think that's why I said to my agent, like, oh my, I've got no more ideas because there was it just felt like there was nothing. So it, always, it almost feels like there is an emotional kind of pool that I can pull from. So, for example, when I, f- when I finished writing That Reminds Me, the emotional pool that I, the emotional well that I could pull from was still active. So I thought I started writing again, writing more like kind of poetry, thinking I'm writing something fresh, when realistically I was still pulling from that same, you know, the same well. So it was almost exactly the same as what I would just written. And then when I realized that, I was like, oh, my God, that's it. I've got nothing else left. But then luckily, yeah, in, in the kitchen that happened again. And with this with this next novel that's happened and the inspiration is there. So I'm just very confident I can start writing it whenever I want to. But yeah, yeah, I always I always say this. I always, the idea will come in my head and then I write with my heart and then I use my head afterwards to kind of shape things. But um, yeah, discipline just doesn't, it really doesn't work for me in terms of writing. I wish it did because I'd probably get a lot more done, but unfortunately, it doesn't.
0: Sorry, so, so Kind of across the kind of both books, kind you can see the kind of form of the writing is as important as the kind of narrative itself. And you kind of were talking about it um in that at the beginning. I kind of wondering, at what point in the process does that kind of come in? Do you kind of think of a narrative, and then as you write that, the how you're going to tell that through the form comes through, or when you're conceiving about the beginning, kind of the structure of the novel is in your in the storytelling when you're coming up with it, like kind of what is kind of chronologically when you're coming up with it. How does that all work together?
4: Yeah, I think I think it just depends on. The emotional state in which I'm writing, it just, it's really hard to explain. And, you know, I, I don't really want to interrogate it too much because I feel like if I do that, I'll lose it. But it just comes out the way it comes out when I'm writing, you know. Um, things just feel right in certain places, in certain areas. Or, you know, I could write, there's some, I think there's like a, a chapter in the book that's maybe like two lines, you know. And, and I wrote it and I was just kind of like, that's it that's that's all I need to write you know that's that's all it needs to be there um but yeah in terms of like yeah having the voice in the margin those kind of things were more thought through um obviously when I knew what I wanted to do with the sound voice but in terms of my pro style and the way I write it just you know it just comes out as it comes out you know and a lot of, I've had the question a lot about I guess kind of my right my writing style and people kind of asking like do you think that this is difficult to read and whatnot but I don't think it is when I'm writing, I always I'm always thinking this is accessible to everybody because the emotions with which I'm writing are accessible to everybody. So that's why my concern is always, you know, you, I, I don't think you can read any literary novel and understand absolutely everything of it the first time around. It's just not going to happen. So if you read this and there's going to be cultural references that are just you're just not going to get them unless you maybe Google or you read a second time. And that's absolutely fine. Do you know what I mean? Um so I have no problem with people saying, Oh, I didn't understand everything the first time round. That's cool, that's good. Um, you know, give it, give it, give it a go the second time. So, but yeah, it, it mostly it's just kind of an emotional charge and everything just kind of fits together. It's almost like a puzzle sometimes when I'm writing it. The thing just fits together the way it feels it's supposed to.
6: Um, my question maybe is a bit broad, um, to so kind of broadening the conversation. there's a phrase in your book, uh, About your mother living here for thirty years and not feeling British, and my question is about um, something in the UK making it a place where you you live for thirty or fifty years and you still get a question where you're from. Of course, different groups of people experience it differently. But what is in your? Do do you see any changes in in immigration being embraced in literature at least? Because Again, English is a language which is spoken by many communities um, in a different way, but then can you claim ownership of it if you were not born into English or if you have been living here for a long time and uh, you're still being asked where you're from on the basis of your accent or the way you look, this mm. kind of thing. So uh, what's your opinion on this trends, maybe in, in literature, not the society in general? but. Um,
4: I, I think for, for me, I haven't... Really experienced um, people, kind of in any way, trying to try to pigeonhole my book or ask, is this like Ghanaian literature? Or you know, generally people just call me a British writer. Um, They don't even call me a Black British writer; just call me a British writer. Um, I have no problem with either of those things. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, look, all language is borrowed. Do you know what I mean? All of it. Um, In at the end of the book, when I'm talking about the translations. I'm very clear and I just literally write the languages spoken in this book are English entry. Everything is an approximation. Nothing is accurate. Um, and that's, that's how I that's how I feel about it. A language doesn't belong to to anybody. Just some people can wield it in in superficial ways to make it feel like, to make you feel like they own that language. But sometimes my mum will turn a phrase in English. That really stops me in my tracks. Do you know what I mean? Because she's translating something in tree in her head, and she tried to translate it to English, and it's come across so profound. Do you know what I mean? That no native English speaker would have been able to turn a phrase like that. Um, so to say that my mom hasn't owned English in that moment is ridiculous to me. Do you know what I mean? So um, yeah, I think I think when it comes to literature and your writing. Just don't even concern yourself with those kind of questions. What, where am I going to be pigeonholed? I don't think about it at all.
5: Um, Shall we conclude this part of the evening? Cool. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for your questions and contributions. It was amazing. Um, I really enjoyed it. And As with the best events here, I forgot it in my job at some point points and thought, oh, hang on, I need to be working and keeping me out and stuff because I've been so absorbed. Thank you so much. Um, Derek, Jason, truly, thank you. Um, thank you.
4: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.